Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White. It's time to once again dive into the week's top headlines. It's been a busy week for the courts. Cable network Fox News and Dominion settled a massive defamation lawsuit, and the Supreme Court will soon let us know where they stand on a common abortion pill. And simple mistakes, like ringing the doorbell or turning down the wrong driveway, became nightmares for some families this week. On Wednesday, an 84-year-old white man pleaded not guilty to the shooting of 16-year-old Ralph Yarl, who is black. Last week, Yarl mistakenly went to the wrong house to pick up his siblings. Instead of answering the doorbell, homeowner Andrew Lester shot through the door and hit the teen in the head and arm. Lester's grandson, Clint Ludwig, told CNN he's not overly surprised by his grandfather's actions. I feel like a lot of people of that generation are caught up in this uh, 24-hour news cycle of fear and paranoia perpetuated by some other news stations. And he was fully into that, sitting and watch uh, Fox News all day, every day, blaring in his living room. And I think that stuff really kind of reinforces this negative view of, of minority groups and leads people to be a little, it doesn't necessarily lead people to be racist, but it reinforces and galvanizes racist people and their beliefs. Yarl is recovering at his Kansas City home. In an Instagram post, the family's attorney said he was a, quote, walking miracle. We'll talk about that and more with Steve Clemens. He's editor-at-large for Semaphore. Also with us is Cheryl Gay-Stolberg. She covers the intersection of health, policy, and politics for the New York Times. And Eva McKend. Eva is the national politics reporter for CNN. Thank you all for joining us. A prosecutor's charged Lester with first-degree assault and armed criminal action. Steve, what else do we know about this case? Well, we know it's quite tragic. Uh, you know, we, he's he's been released on two hundred thousand dollar bail, but this raises, you know, a lot of the the laws in the country that um, basically stand your ground laws that uh, basically give a, a holder of a gun uh, extraordinary uh, privileges, if you will, to 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 shoot when they are fearful. And we have to see how this court plays out. There's so much more. The um, clip you just played by the by his grandson uh, of the shooter is an extraordinary clip and i and i agree with uh, the tone and tenor of that of that comment but right now we know that the uh, young man is um, expected to mostly recover uh, and that's a good thing but this is part of the epidemic of um, gun related incidents around this country and right now we see a paralysis at in state houses but also at the federal level uh, in efforts to try to do something uh, to bring around a change in gun culture in our country. 
As we said, days after that incident, two other shootings involved people showing up at the wrong place. In a Texas supermarket parking lot Tuesday, two cheerleaders were shot after one accidentally tried to get in the wrong car. Peyton Washington was flown to a hospital in critical condition. And in upstate New York, police say a 65-year-old man opened fire on a car that pulled into his driveway by mistake. 20-year-old Kalen Gillis was killed. Kalen's father, Andrew Gillis, spoke to the press on Wednesday. It's my understanding that my daughter and her friends made the mistake of pulling in his driveway, realized it, turned around, and he fired at them as they were leaving the driveway. I have the utmost confidence that the justice system will prevail. Kalen deserves justice. Prosecutors charged homeowner Kevin Monahan with second-degree murder in Gillis's shooting. Cheryl, what's the connection that you see between these stories? I think both these stories are tragic, but I also think that they are in some way sadly tangential to the bigger gun policy debate that's going on in the country, and that's around mass shootings. And I think we have a red America response to the gun problem in this country, and we have a blue America response. So if you think the problem is that there's too many guns out there and, you know, we need to limit the amount of guns, you're going to do something like Colorado tried to do this week, which was to pass an assault weapons ban. It failed. failed. It failed yesterday. President Biden has called for an assault weapons ban. That's not going anywhere. We should mention that Colorado is a Democratic-led legislature. Yes, it is. It is. And that... But that law, the the weapon, and they did pass a more modest package of gun safety measures in Colorado, but the, the banning of assault weapons was even a bridge too far for the Democratic legislature in Colorado. And the sponsor of that bill was tearfully appealing to her Democratic colleagues to please pass this. So that's kind of the blue response. And the red response is if you think that there are too many crazy people out there with guns, you're going to want more guns. The the old good guy with a gun can take care of the bad guy with a gun. What we've seen is that 25 states in this country actually have permitless carry laws. So yesterday, even as Colorado was rejecting an assault weapons ban, Nebraska was passing a permitless carry bill. bill. But there's also kind of this middle path of the red flag laws. And 19 states now have these red flag laws allowing weapons to be taken away on a time-limited, temporary, non-criminal basis from people who um, exhibit tendencies of, of being dangerous, who are deemed dangerous to themselves or others by a court. And in fact, yesterday, also Michigan passed um, a an extreme risk protection order law or a red flag law. It will become the 20th state. So that is kind of a, a, a middle path, but I do think that right now we have a very, very divided country over a response to a problem that is killing, you know, tens of thousands of Americans. We've had, I think, more than 160 mass shootings in this country just this year alone. We're only in the fourth month. We heard from Susanna, who says people have been have brought up 
have been brought up full of fear, anger, and distrust. The result can be seen every day, and too many people feel threatened and unjustifiably think they can act in self-defense. We also heard from Dan in Massachusetts, who says, I have never heard a discussion anywhere about the cost of gun violence to American citizens. We now have to pay for extra security at schools. We have extra security at airports. There is a cost to taxpayers for the freedom for people to carry arms and also the ability for people to obtain weapons legally and illegally and commit mass murder. What does gun violence cost us? Eva, I mean, this sounds like a possible future show for 1A, a question for us to explore here. But your thoughts about what Dan has to say? Yeah, he's absolutely right. There is a, a monetary cost, a psychological cost. And I will say that the the divisions that Cheryl spoke to, how we have a red America response, a blue America response, I see that mirrored in the halls of Congress. A few weeks ago, after the tragedy in Nashville, you had Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York, a prominent progressive, uh, screaming, we have to do something, we have to do something. And you have uh, Thomas Massey of Kentucky, a, a conservative, uh, saying that that his offering the solution to this as uh, hardening schools, as, as um, making sure that there are are people that have more access, more security at schools. And so, and and uh, Congressman Bowman shouts back, we don't need more guns. More guns is not the answer. Mm. So it is just, we seem to be in this perennial debate over this issue with the lines uh, pretty much always staying the same. I will say, though, that after the Nashville tragedy, the governor of Tennessee did indicate that people had to leave these entrenched positions in order for gains to be made and didn't and even though he didn't explicitly call it a red flag law he did seem to advocate for that type of policy. Hey Steve, where does this go from here? We see Congress stuck. We see action sometimes at the state level, but in the meantime, communities are suffering from violence. What's the path forward for the country? Well, you know, I think that's a really big question. We could do hours of shows on it. Look, you know, in my view, the constitutional right that many Americans feel they have um, to to own and, and, and buy guns and hold guns uh, for their protection mm-hmm. is going to be very, very hard to budge in this country. And, you know, a lot of other Americans... Uh, look at Europe, and they and they see the gun bans, whatnot, and think, "Can't we be like that?" Look at the levels of of, of violence uh, there that are that are so much lower. And in my view, in the United States, given our constitutional DNA, it's going to be very hard to it. But to come back to how this latest incident happened of this young man who was shot, uh, others that were looking at, we were looking at the uh, well, that was a, a gun, but in Colorado, they were trying to ban uh, semi-automatic. Uh, ammunition and supplies and weapons, and if you look at the types of guns, that, that that seems to be the debate that's missing. Somehow, the National Rifle Association has um, been able to convince uh, 
a great number of legislators, if not Americans, because there's a gap between what the American public feels, where there's overwhelming support for various kinds of common sense gun measures and an opposition to essentially weapons of war that we're selling in in, uh, the gun industry. It's the News Roundup. We'll be back with more from you and our guests after the break. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PWC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PWC. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Jim who says, Incidents where someone went to the wrong address or vehicle and are shot are tragic, but they represent a statistically insignificant number of shootings compared to the shootings which occur at the intended address. Cheryl, this is something you've, you've done a lot of reporting on. And, and what do you see as the broader context around this? Well, I think there are a couple of broader contexts. One is that in imagine a situation in which this man did not have a gun. Uh, Andrew Lester, the 84-year-old man, what would he have done if he saw a kid show up at his door? Well, he probably would have called the police. Now, you could say maybe the police would have come, and we know there are a lot of police-involved shootings and would have shot the young man, and the result would have been the same. But maybe not. Maybe police would have diffused the situation. Um, I also think we haven't really spoken about racism in this case. I mean, this was an an older white man looking at a young black man and not seeing the good student, the band leader, the musician that he was, but instead seeing a potential, a threat. And I, I frankly, I don't, that's such a deep problem. I, I don't know um, how we how we cure that problem, but I think that it can't be ignored mm-hmm. in, in this situation. And then, yeah, I mean, when we hear about gun violence, oftentimes there are arguments about mental health. And since you're someone reporting from that intersection right. of, of policy and politics and, and health, what do you think about that argument? So, so here's what researchers will tell you. I've, I've interviewed a couple of times a professor at Duke University, Jeff Swanson. He studies mental health and gun violence. And this is what he said to me recently. He said that fixing mental health is a slogan for a totally different problem that intersects with gun violence just on the edges, and that if we were to wildly succeed in curing mental health problems, if we cured schizophrenia, if we cured bipolar disorder and major depression, our violence rate would go down by 4%. So this, the fixing mental health is, frankly, a Republican talking point to a problem that exists. We do have mental health problems uh, in the United States, but Mental illness is not the cause of gun violence, of the gun violence epidemic that we have in this country. Let's turn to some legal news now. On Tuesday, the conservative cable network 
Fox News agreed to settle with Dominion Voting Systems in one of the largest defamation lawsuits in U.S. history. Fox will pay Dominion $787.5 million. Dominion sued Fox for spreading misinformation and disinformation around the company's voting machines and the 2020 presidential election. Eva, this was headed to a trial. Why did Fox and Dominion settle? Well, it seems like ultimately Fox wanted to avert a lengthy and embarrassing trial, Jen. Um, The last couple of weeks have been really bruising for the organization. We learned so much during the discovery process that prominent anchors were privately texting their concerns and their disbelief in the election lies promoted by the former president and his supporters, but then they were getting on air and saying the complete opposite of what they knew to be true. So ultimately, it seemed like both parties just wanted to end this, but I wasn't in the courtroom, but my colleague Marshall Cohen was, and he said that there were audible gasps when the judge announced that there was a settlement. This is not what many people thought would ultimately come of this. But also there are some upsides for Dominion, too. You know, say they would have won, it it could have invited appeals, and maybe they would have never ultimately seen uh, this large windfall of money. So that is why both sides uh, seem to have come to this agreement. Well, the lead lawyer for Dominion Voting Systems in this case is Justin Nelson. He spoke to CNN on Wednesday. This is more than three-quarters of a billion dollars. And it really is important to the employees. It's a strong message of accountability. This is really the first time that anyone has paid a price for telling the lies of the 2020 election. And we're very proud about that. So, Steve, there's the settlement. But does Fox News have to do anything other than write a check? Well, right now, Fox News... Um, that that's what gets by uh, gets them by this, but they've got other lawsuits that have been brought by other election machinery uh, uh, groups like Smartmatic, um, and they also have you know essentially the potential, which which has been very rarely discussed, of eventually some sort of political uh, dimension here, because you know you sort of see with. Uh, some of the other networks that were sued by Dominion, like One America News Network, Newsmax, as, Newsmax, as well as Rudy Giuliani and other um, um, basically celebrities in the news that had um, stirred up concerns and beliefs that the election had been stolen, that I think in that environment, they, they are, they, there's a whole slew of an ecosystem of challenge in trying to, to pin accountability on this. But right now, Fox has survived. It has very, very deep pockets. But there's something called the fairness doctrine that we used to have in media that has faded away and gone away. And I think that a lot of people are looking and saying, maybe uh, media has gone far to uh, you know, one side or the other and that we've got to return in the mass media to a different form of political balance, if you will. And so I think that's one of the dimensions, the sort of softer and tangible uh, parts of this decision uh, to settle because people all know how much it was. They all know that Fox is admitted to essentially lying uh, in some parts about Dominion uh, and says that it will now commit itself to the highest level of journalistic integrity in the future. But we'll have to see what happens. But I think they're facing now another major lawsuit for $2.7 billion, even larger uh, than the Dominion lawsuit was. Eva, does Fox have to go on its own air and say anything about disinformation around the election? They do not. It, it doesn't seem that they do beyond this, this statement that they put out that was, 
you know, rather bland and I think not the fulsome apology and correction that many journalists uh, that I've spoken to really would have hoped for. But from Dominion's perspective, they say that the money speaks volumes. Um, We will see. But, you know, they hardly covered this. They did not address this on air. And it's important to keep in mind that many Republicans across the country still believe that the 2020 election was stolen. So in many ways, like the damage has already been done here. And Fox will go on to continue to make billions of dollars in profits. They were on their knees for a couple of weeks. It was very embarrassing, I think, for private text messages to become public. But some will argue that they have escaped accountability once again. Well, and I'm curious to hear from you, Cheryl. We talk a lot about media bubbles and how we are in this time and we can create the media environment we want for ourselves. And so if people have been following Fox News and believing their reporting, this defamation trial is settled, but they don't talk about it on their own air. There's no requirement for them to say, actually, not only were we incorrect, <laughs> we actually lied about this. What does that mean for their audience? So I think I feel like I should go back to my answer number one, which is a red America and a blue America. And we do have media bubbles in which people are drawn to media outlets that espouse their views. So liberals tend to watch MSNBC and conservatives tend to watch Fox. But there's one thing that I wanted to mention that is uh, maybe a little bit counterintuitive on the part of a journalist who wants the truth, and that is that I personally was a little bit worried about this lawsuit going forward and a trial for this reason. Um, If this got up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court could reconsider a, a landmark First Amendment ruling in the case of New York Times versus Sullivan, which established that it's not enough for the uh, a plaintiff to show that a, the press has uh, published false statements, that the target has to show um, malice aforethought, that you have to show intent, intent to harm. And that is a really strong protection of the First Amendment that is afforded to journalists. And I think a lot of journalists would really worry about that protection being eroded in a case that went up to a conservative Supreme Court and could possibly decide that maybe the press didn't need to be afforded as much protection as has been in the past and that and could make it easier to sue news organizations. So, hmm. well, Steve, Steve, I'm curious to hear your thoughts considering your earlier point. I mean, I appreciate uh, very much Cheryl's view, but but the other one is Fox is America's largest news network, and it's not just bubbles. It's the most impactful, the most politically consequential station, and so for for it not to go – I mean I understand the, the downstream consequences of had this been a legal decision that had gone the other way against Fox in a court of law in, in major, major judgment and the fear of impact. But there's a bigger, broader issue about what the building blocks of democracy are and what – if you have essentially an oligopoly or a monopolistic you know, player in this that has decided for whatever reasons for financial uh, gain and profit to to propagate a message that is – that, that goes right to the heart of democracy and in this particular case, you know, propagates the notion that a, that a presidential election was stolen, 
that has to be responded to, yeah. right? So that's, I just, I get the other side of it, but but when you compare the two, one is vastly more important in terms of the DNA of democracy, in my view. I get that. And I also think that it is extremely disappointing that Fox did not have to apologize for what clearly were falsehoods aired by their uh, by their network, demonstrably false. And all you had to do was look at the text messages to see that they didn't believe it themselves. So, Steve, I agree with you on that. We got this message from B who says, I'm so disappointed at the settlement, I at least wanted Dominion to not budge on demanding Fox broadcast prominent corrections about their lies. Let's turn now to Congress. On Wednesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy revealed his plan to raise the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion. McCarthy's bill is called the Limit, Save, Grow Act of 2023. Here's the House Speaker making his case for a deal on the floor of the House on Wednesday. The House, the Senate, and the White House should be negotiating a responsible debt limit increase right now. You know, if you gave your child a credit card and they kept maxing it out to the limit, you wouldn't blindly just raise the limit. You'd change their behavior. That exact same thing is true with our national debt. Eva, walk us through this plan. What would it do? So it would do a number of things. It would enact stricter work requirements on food stamps and uh, on food stamp and Medicaid recipients. They're also calling for a pullback of legislation that was already passed um, under President Biden, the climate and tax law. They want to see uh, uh, scaling back of the tax credits um, for uh, incentivizing the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, those are, I think, non-starters in the, the democratically controlled Senate. But at this point, the speaker was under immense pressure because this is something that they have been calling for for a long time, indicating that the administration had to come to the table to negotiate. But they took a long time to actually outline what they wanted to negotiate about. But the problem for Speaker McCarthy is that members of his own party don't seem to be on board with this plan. Uh, a, a block of the conservative right hasn't come out and outright denounced it, but it seems like they aren't all there yet. So how can he negotiate with Democrats when his house is not even in order? Well, and Eve, just remind us the deadline we're bumping up against here. I think at this point, we could be facing a problem come June. So there isn't very much time here, and the economic consequences could be catastrophic. President Biden is critical of McCarthy's plan. This week, he referenced his predecessor in the White House. Donald Trump seeking to increase the debt limit while he was doing what he was doing. He said, quote, I can't imagine anybody ever even thinking about using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge. I guess he didn't know the new MAGA Republicans he bred. The White House maintains they will not negotiate on the debt ceiling. Cheryl, how do you see things playing out? You know, this is brinksmanship. It's who's going to blink first. I have to say that in the past, these things have always been resolved. And there's sort of, it was interesting to see the reaction to McCarthy's speech on Wall Street, which was kind of like a ho-hum, like stocks didn't take a nosedive, you know, things just sort of went on, which suggests that people in the financial industry think that eventually, somehow or another, they will avoid 
uh, a default. And I always say that Congress is like a bunch of teenagers. They do everything at the last minute. They wait till the you know deadline. They have pizza at midnight, and mm. they come up with a deal. So I, I don't know what this deal will look like. Both sides seem really dug in. But I do know that both sides also know it would be catastrophic for the United States to default on its obligations. And it could unleash a whole torrent of events, including, you know, a terrible impact on the economy, older people not getting paid their Social Security bills or checks, and that, that no political party wants to see happen. So both sides have an incentive to figure this out. But Steve, when we think about that far right block of Republicans, and I'm I'm just thinking back to how Speaker McCarthy got the speakership, I mean, how does that dynamic play into this situation? Well, it's a real problem for Kevin McCarthy. I mean, if you take a step back and, you know, I probably uh, am with those that don't think that you, that you should negotiate all these things after you pass, you know, the debt ceiling increase because that debt ceiling increase is tied to, to spending decisions that have already been made and locked into law. Um, but, you know, talk about it later. But that said, not all of the, the ideas in Kevin McCarthy's package are, are crazy ones. It's one of the reasons why Senator Joe Manchin has kind of blasted President Biden, saying, why aren't you talking about some of this in some constructive way? And just saying, I'm not even going to uh, have a meeting with McCarthy in the White House. But the, but the hard right that, that McCarthy did a deal with are going to, you know, right now, some of them may hold out. It's going to be a contest, just like Eva said, between those those folks on the right fringe who've now been main, become mainstream power brokers in the House GOP caucus and whether they are going to win or Kevin McCarthy is going to win. The other question we have to ask is will some Democrats, and I, and I sort of think we haven't reported very well on this, will some Democrats essentially come around and save McCarthy in this? What their price will be, we'll have to find out. But I think there is a brewing sense that the consequences to the United States, its economy of collapsing the full faith and credit of the United States potentially, is something that you may find a maneuver, just like mm-hmm. Cheryl Stett said at the last minute. It's the News Roundup. We'll be back with more from you and our guests after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.
Now let's get back to the roundup. A lot is riding on what we expect to hear from the Supreme Court in the coming hours. On Wednesday, the court extended a stay handed down last Friday. It paused a lower court's order that severely restricted access to the abortion and miscarriage care drug, Mifepristone. The justices are considering whether to sign on to this attempt to restrict the medication, and that decision is expected to come before midnight tonight. Cheryl, what will this decision mean for Mifepristone access and for the FDA's authority? Well, it has grave consequences for both. Um, if the court decides to uphold the lower, uh, the Texas ruling, um, it would mean that mifepristone is not available to American women across the country, not only in states where abortion and the use of abortion pills is now illegal. Secondly, this would be the first time that I know of anyway that a judge has and a court has substituted its judgment for the medical judgment of the FDA. Mifepristone has been on the market since 2000. It was approved in 2000. The FDA loosened some restrictions on its um, uh, on it uh, in, I think, 2015 or 2016. And then more recently, it um, eliminated the in-person requirement, which means that, you know, you could get it like by mail. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would obviously be a... a a huge precedent overturning the federal regulatory authority that, um, you know, approves all of our drugs and medical devices. And it would also be a serious blow to the cause of abortion rights and to women's right to choose. Now, there was the decision in Texas and then a an opposing decision, you could say, in right. Washington and that's State. that's going to land up in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, ultimately, I mean, so what... I guess what what Alito is doing is, or what Alito has done is extend a temporary stay. Ultimately, the Supreme Court will, I think, consider the um, the clash of these two rulings: the ruling in Texas, which limited mifepristone, and the ruling in I'm sorry, the other state is escaping me, Washington, Washington State. State that's mm-hmm. right. In essence, a uh, complete opposite of the Texas ruling. In light of those rulings, we heard some states. We're stockpiling mifepristone. So, what for states that still allow uh, abortion or have fewer abortion restrictions? Will they still be able to prescribe this drug at all? Well, right now, D- depending on the Supreme right, Court, depending decision, on what the Supreme Court right. does, right now they can because at least until eleven fifty nine p.m. Uh, this evening, uh, we're in a situation where Judge Alito has issued a stay of the Texas ruling. Now we're all waiting to see what's, you know, what is going to happen uh, after 11.59 p.m. or presumably sometime before then today. And and we don't know that. Well, we're going to turn now to a headline from Semaphore earlier this week. Quote, Tim Scott's soft launch runs into some hard questions on abortion. Steve, I'll come to you in a moment. But first, let's take a listen to this back and forth between the Republican senator from South Carolina and NBC's Ali Vitali. If I were president of the United States, I would literally sign the most conservative pro-life legislation that they can get through Congress. Even if it was six weeks? I'm not going to talk about six or five or seven or ten. I'm just saying that whatever the most conservative legislation is that can come through Congress... Is what you would sign? Yes. How do you square the states' rights issue with the potential for a national ban that would set a federal mile marker? Well, 
No one's talking about a national band, number one. Number two, I would simply say that there's so no doubt. So you're putting back so any kind of national band. We're, we're, we're doing, I'm not going to do a bunch of hypotheticals. That was NBC's Ellie Vitale pressing Senator Tim Scott for some firm answers. And the six-week figure you heard mentioned is tied to new legislation in Florida that outlaws abortions after six weeks. That's sooner than many people even know they're pregnant. Steve, what problems is this one issue causing the GOP? Well, I think it's causing a a challenge for every candidate because there's such a patchwork of views. Uh, Tim Scott said that he would immediately sign a 20-week ban, but for many uh, GOP conservatives... That's that's not nearly uh, enough for where they're at. I interviewed, um, he's not in the race yet, but former Governor Chris Christie the other day who believes very much in a state's rights approach, whatever the state wants, and has a lot of objection to Republicans basically calling for a federalization of these statues. And I think Senator Scott, you know, our, our reporting, I, I think, showed that he connected with people in New Hampshire on every issue but this one. Uh, and this one, there was, you know, basically... Uh, he hasn't figured out what his North Star is of yet in the comments that he that he shared. Eva, you spend a good amount of time around the country reporting for CNN. What conversations have you had with voters and, and party officials about where this issue ranks in terms of its importance to the outcomes of the 2024 presidential election? Yeah, Jen, this is a significant issue. I think it will be perhaps, the, if not the defining issue of of. 2024 right up there as one of the most consequential. Republicans can't outrun that the position that they are taking in many ways that they have been pressured to take from uh, the activist base is not popular and consistent with what most Americans want. And so most Americans don't want a federal abortion ban. And yet some in uh, some of the activists are pressuring them into taking that position. I think that they also really underestimated, and many of us underestimated, how powerful this issue would be in the midterms. I had Democratic strategists on the trail telling me uh, last year that, listen, this is going to be this is going to make the difference in some house races for us that we previously thought were not winnable. You know, now that Roe has been overturned, this makes our candidates a lot more appealing. And Republicans were arguing that that argument was overstated. Well, apparently it wasn't. And so that is why we are seeing all of these concerns going into the presidential contest. Cheryl? I was just going to say, look at what happened in Wisconsin earlier this month. Wisconsin voters picked a state Supreme Court judge who argued vigorously that uh, Roe v. Wade should not have been overturned, that flipped the majority control in the in their state Supreme Court uh, away from conservatives. The court is n- likely now to reverse Wisconsin's longstanding ban on abortion. And it was really that one election sort of, I think, crystallized um, the American debate mm-hmm. over this issue. And you know, Wisconsin has had an abortion ban, I think, since I think probably for like 100 years or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, Eva, I'm curious to hear as we head into 2024, how will you watch? How are you watching how this issue plays out in in terms of the state level dynamics around politics? And, and we know some states are shifting as the population shifts and into, you know, either a more red state or a more blue state or a more purple state. What are you watching there? Yeah, I think that that ultimately that's where this, this, the, the Supreme Court decision returned 
return this this battlefield or return this conversation to the states. But I'm also seeing, I guess, there are some in the Republican Party among the activist base that sort of have their, their fingers in their ears, I would say, um, on this issue. And they don't want to hear, you know, when you when you confront them with the reality that, listen, many Americans don't agree with this position. Um, you know, they argue that that they they are right on this and they are being consistent with their values. So I'm just I'm really curious to see how, especially at the presidential level, these candidates grapple with this reality that the position that they are taking is not in line with what so many Americans want. Well, let's turn now to something we talk about a lot on the show, artificial intelligence. AI development is outpacing regulation of the technology, and there are some lawmakers willing to admit they're not prepared to make policies to keep up with AI. You have members of Congress that don't know how to log into Zoom or Facebook. And, and, and so to have these kinds of really important debates about technology and our vulnerabilities, you want people to be able to understand what the technology is and what it isn't. That's Republican Representative Nancy Mace speaking to Fox this week, along with several other lawmakers, concerned about Congress's ability to regulate AI. Tesla founder Elon Musk also told Fox that unregulated AI is, quote, a potentially destructive threat to civilization. Steve, what are the top concerns about a lack of oversight over AI right now? Well, I think they're huge. I mean, there are people, I mean, I found Ted Lieu, Representative Ted Lieu's comments there that, you know, he's a, uh, a computer scientist and he thinks his competencies on a, on a scale of one to 10 at about a five. And, and, you know, when you look at his expertise compared to many others, or you watch the TikTok uh, uh, hearings that were held recently, you, you, you saw a number of legislators who quickly, who clearly had little understanding of some of the, you know, data dimensions and some of the practical use dimensions that Americans and others are using with TikTok. And, and so you, 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 there is a huge gap. And I think so the oversight function, and I ask many, many heads of industry, uh, Brad Smith recently of Microsoft, who was generous, uh, honestly, in, in his assessment of legislators, but what is the gap in literacy that, that, because Microsoft is saying we need guardrails from legislators. We need to have uh, an ethical AI uh, platform out there that we uh, drive our industry towards. But yet on the, on the other side of this, it looks as if uh, there's some real gaps in expertise. Some have said that, that staff members are being trained well, but to me, uh, it still looks pretty dim when it comes to them having the expertise needed to sort of put guardrails around this industry. Even no one's pushing pause on the development of this technology. How much of a uh, priority is this for Congress right now? I think it also runs into this issue of the the future of of cybersecurity. I think, and I think that's the concerns that I have heard from lawmakers. Um, and I think that, you know, for a while they weren't really taking this seriously. But I do think that, as Steve was mentioning, there are some lawmakers that just feel sort of out of their depth. But I do I think that in the, the coming weeks and months, we're going to see growing concern about this because of uh, what I've heard about um, concerns about it potentially being a, a national security issue. Cheryl? One thing I thought was interesting was Elon Musk calling for an immediate pause on AI experiments. And it reminded me of a situation in 2012 when scientists were doing something called gain-of-function research, tinkering with viruses to create a potentially deadly flu. And scientists themselves, led by the NIH and doctors like Tony Fauci, actually 
put a pause, a self-imposed pause on those experiments until they could figure out a kind of a, a regulatory or an oversight path. That's an issue again now with the coronavirus, but you can envision something like this happening where maybe there does need to be a pause. Of course, the, the CEO of OpenAI is opposed to such a pause, but, um, but it is an interesting thought that could the community come together and say, hey, let's put the brakes on, if only temporarily, until we figure out kind of what we have here and how to proceed safely. Well, let's touch on a couple of other stories before we wrap. President Biden faces a new challenger for the White House with a familiar name in American politics. I've come here today to announce my candidacy for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. On Wednesday, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. pledged to challenge, quote, corporate feudalism, the pharmaceutical industry and social media censorship in his bid for the Democratic nomination to the White House. Meta disabled Facebook and Instagram accounts for a group he runs after they spread medical misinformation about the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, this is a much different presidential candidate than his uncle, John F. Kennedy, or his father, Robert F. Kennedy. Eva, what are the younger Kennedy's politics? Well, he has become known for his anti-vax position, um, I think to the the great sadness of many of his family members who do not want to see, did not want to see him uh, make this run. Historically, though, he has also been uh, known as an environmentalist. Uh, he appeals actually to some on the right because of this larger argument about you know, civil liberties. He actually sounds like a lot on the right when he talks about how he's frustrated with how the media and the government uh, censors uh, dissonant voices. But I think by any measure, this is really viewed as a long shot bid. We know that President Biden and those in his orbit are not concerned and that many in the Kennedy family would have preferred him not not run. Let's turn on to some uplifting medical news. New research suggests a personalized mRNA vaccine could reduce a patient's risk of death from skin cancer when paired with an immunotherapy drug. The vaccine was developed by the pharmaceutical companies Merck and Moderna. Cheryl, what could this mean for, for people with melanoma and other skin cancers? Well, I think it's very exciting, but I also think it's important not to get too overly excited. Um, the trial showed that it reduced the risk of recurrence of serious skin cancer when combined with Keytruda, which is a very powerful immunotherapy drug. But I think what's exciting about this is kind of the proof of concept that mRNA vaccines, which have been successful in reducing death and serious illness from the coronavirus, sort of a, are now being um, viewed in other in other contexts. And I think a lot of scientists and are looking at where that's going to go. And certainly Moderna is very happy about it. <laughs> well, we'll leave it there for this week. That's Cheryl Gay Stolberg from the New York Times. Also with us today, Steve Clemens. He's editor-at-large at Semaphore. And Eva McKend, national politics reporter for CNN. Thanks to you all. And before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, we remember Ahmad Jamal. The New Yorker called him a colossus of jazz. Ahmad Jamal, pianist and band leader who helped pioneer the style that would come to be called cool jazz, died on Sunday. In the 50s, his style was initially dismissed by critics as superficial cocktail lounge music. 
but the record-buying public disagreed. His 1958 album, At the Pershing But Not For Me, spent two years on Billboard's album chart. Later generations of jazz pianists like Herbie Hancock and Keith Jarrett cite Jamal as a major influence. Ahmad Jamal was 92. Stay with us. We've got so much to cover during the global edition of the News Roundup. We'll be back after this quick break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, hosts Lizanne Saunders, Schwab's chief investment strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's chief fixed income strategist, along with their guests, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around stocks, fixed income, the economy, and more. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. It's now time for the global edition of the News Roundup, where we discuss some of the biggest headlines from around the world. One of them happened closer than you'd think. What is China doing running a secret police station just yards from the Brooklyn Bridge? And we're not the only ones with our eyes on a Supreme Court. India's top judges are considering a landmark case, one that could tell us much about a country whose population is poised to become the world's biggest. All three of our guests are with me in studio today. Joyce Karam is senior news editor at El Monitor. Joyce, it's great to have you back. Great to be here. Jennifer Williams is deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Hi, Jen. Hey. And Dave. Lawler is senior world reporter at Axios and author of the Axios World newsletter. Hi, Dave. Great to see you. Great to be with you. Well, let's start in Sudan. Nearly a week ago, fighting started between two top generals. They are the Sudanese Army General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan and General Mohamed Hamdan Dagolo, widely known as Hamedi. 
He leads the paramilitary group Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF. At least 400 people have been killed. Those are numbers from the World Health Organization. Blah. At least 400 people have been killed. Those are numbers from the World Health Organization. Foreign policy reports the U.S. military is trying to coordinate calls with both leaders, and both sides spoke of a ceasefire for Eid that marks the end of Ramadan. Here's General Abdel Fattah al-Barhan's earlier today. He says, our country is marking the event of the blessed Eid al-Fitr. While going through a major wound as dead and injured have fallen, families are displaced, facilities and homes are destroyed. Ruin and destruction and the sound of bullets have left no place for the happiness everyone in our beloved country deserves. Joyce, why are two of Sudan's most powerful leaders fighting each other? Jen, this is a very bad uh, situation. These two generals not long time ago were allies. In 2021, they carried a coup to uh, oust the civilian uh, government. Uh, There was a deadline in April 11 to carry on with the civilian uh, transition that was missed. And from there, everything went uh, south. Uh, They're basically jockeying for power. Uh, They're two very uh, greedy, uh, power-hungry generals that uh, have decided, especially the RSF, uh, Hamiti, that uh, that you mentioned, that he is going to declare a war on the country's military. Uh, What's what's scary and worrisome about this one is it's happening in the capital, uh, Khartoum. Uh, Khartoum, as you know, is uh, pretty much uh, landlocked. It's been spared from... Most of Sudan's uh, heavy history with wars, and it's very hard to get um, things to Khartoum and out. So we're having a very bad humanitarian situation. Uh, what we are uh, what we are seeing uh, uh, as well is on a day like uh, you know Eid al Fitr today. Happy Eid to uh, all our listeners, uh, actually. And but even on a day like today, where Turkey, the U.S., uh, Gulf countries all have tried to impose a three-day ceasefire. That hasn't uh, happened. The reports we're seeing from the ground, bodies uh, in the streets of uh, of Khartoum, uh, children with bullets in, in their hats in the hospitals. Mm. It's 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 actually horrific. Uh, there is no end uh, in sight. Burhan had said uh, he only sees a military ending uh, mm. to to this conflict. Efforts again from Washington and others uh, to. Uh, to broker a ceasefire have been stalled. Jen, at this point, how much humanitarian aid, if any, is getting to civilians in the country? And if there's not humanitarian aid getting in, what would it take to get it there? Yeah, um, there's not much. Um, The aid agencies that are actually on the ground there are trying to get out um, because they have actually been targeted Mm -hmm. by the fighting. Um, And so they are very concerned Obviously, for the safety, you know, first and foremost of their people on the ground, many of whom are locals, um, but also international, um, you know, volunteers and workers as well. Um, Basically, the situation that you have in Khartoum is everyone is hiding in their houses. Nobody's leaving. The streets are basically empty. And so you have really bad situations kind of escalating because, you know, people are starting to run out of food and, you know, basic kind of necessities. Many people, you know, in the country kind of live hand to mouth. Many people work in the informal economy. So 
they're not able to go out, you know, and do things like, you know, drive taxis or run, you know, food carts and things like that. So with the streets empty, nobody's going to work. That means people aren't earning income. Um, people, if they didn't have a big, you know, stockpiled, which why would you have stockpiled food? Nobody expected this. It just kind of erupted. So you have people running out of food. They're trying to make these kind of desperate runs to the market. The shelves are, you know, um, becoming empty. Meanwhile, the fighting is still going on. Some people who are close to military bases or, um, you know, the airport or to different targets, places where, you know, associated with one um, group or the other, if you live kind of near them, you're not going anywhere. You are not stepping outside your front door. Uh, meanwhile, it's, you know, other people are trying to make these kind of desperate runs to the market and back. So it's it's increasingly desperate. People can't even really get out um, mm. if they want to evacuate. So that's why we're seeing, you know, these, these over and over tries to have a ceasefire. What it would take is essentially a ceasefire. Literally, they've tried twice. It has collapsed twice. I think part of the problem here is we don't necessarily know how good the command and control situation is. Mm. Possibly on both sides. Um, so, you know, you can have both leaders potentially agree, but there are, especially within the military itself, there are probably some factions that want to keep fighting, whereas, you know, the leader may say, yes, ceasefire. Um, and so there doesn't seem to be a ton of command and control in terms of trying to get people to stop fighting. And so you just have this kind of constant conflict and nobody can go anywhere. Yeah. We've gotten this question from a few listeners, Dave. What is the U.S. strategic interest in Sudan? Sure. So right now, the U.S. primary interest is to get the fighting uh, to stop, as uh, as Joyce and Jen both mentioned. Um, basically, the U.S., since this transition uh, that took place, the dictator al-Bashir was forced out in this really mass uh, revolution of the Sudanese people. The U.S. has been trying uh, to keep some kind of transition in place whereby a civilian government, ideally, eventually a democratically elected civilian government, will take power uh, in Khartoum. That transition has continually been pushed off course, uh, really, by these two guys more than anyone else, these two generals who've been fighting for power. So uh, the primary focus at the moment, um, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has spoken to both leaders. Um, they're trying uh, to get them, as, as Jen mentioned, it's difficult to even get it down from the top, uh, in, implemented in the ranks, a ceasefire. Um, but uh, yeah, and obviously Sudan has a history uh, of, of um, harboring al-Qaeda, for example, in the past under Bashir, et cetera. So the U.S. does have security interests related to Sudan as well. Joyce? Yeah, I just wanted to mention that the U.S. does have a uh, you know, contentious history with, with Sudan, didn't have an embassy till 2002. Uh, the CIA reopened in, in the country under uh, Obama, and we saw an uphold from there after Bashir was ousted in 2019. Uh, the problem that the U.S. has now is you have other outside actors in the country. A report uh, from CNN and the Wall Street Journal this week is showing that Russia, through Wagner, is arming uh, the RSF, which uh, comes complicates U.S. efforts and U.S. leverage uh, in uh, uh, in the country. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure there are many good options for the U.S. From here, the Pentagon has already drawn uh, contingency plans to evacuate uh, uh, U.S. personnel, estimated around 100 in, in the country. Uh, so we may see that happening pretty soon. We had the first U.S. casualty uh, overnight mm -hmm. in, in Sudan. Jen, what does this conflict in Sudan mean for the stability of the region? 
Yeah, I mean, the region in general, uh, you know, has obviously gone through a lot of turmoil uh, lately. And even just Sudan itself, right? We had Sudan and South Sudan have this kind of brutal long war uh, before South Sudan became South Sudan. Um, And so, you know, Sudan itself was, for all intents and purposes, fairly stable in the sense that, you know, the politics uh, were not settled, right? There was a revolution, like we said, that, you know, and kind of got rid of Bashir. And then you had this kind of transitional government that kind of came together that was controlled by the military, but you had civilians still, you know, uh, protesting in the streets to try to, you know, advocate for a civilian-led transition to democracy. So it's not to say that it was it was settled by any means, but it was stable in the sense that there wasn't an ongoing conflict, right? Remember, we did have, you know, the conflict in Darfur for, for years, right, and a genocide there. So for a long time, you know, in, in the last several years, it was fairly stable in the sense that not an, an ongoing conflict. And so now that's why in, in particular we're seeing a lot of concern over, oh, oh no, is it about to descend into full-on civil war? I think the concern right now in particular too is that the longer this goes on, the harder it is to stop, right? Because if you stop it right now, if you get a ceasefire right now, then yes, you know, more than 400 people have been killed. That's a lot. But you can stop it there whether if it keeps going, the longer it keeps going, the more you have, you know, both sides digging in, the more you have people who are, you know, now wanting to get revenge for, you know, the other side, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's why we're trying to really see it and kind of nip it in the bud, if you will, before it evolves or devolves into a, a broader civil war that does end up kind of destabilizing the broader region even further. We got this question from Scott who says, do we know if Russia has taken a side in this dispute? Joyce? Uh, Russia is seen very close to Hamiti, the uh, head of the RSF forces, who visited Moscow in uh, uh, February. But other than Russia, Egypt is supporting his nemesis, uh, Burhan. So we have total regional divide in a region like the Horn of Africa that's already seeing uh, much conflict and, uh, you know, other environmental starvation, drought issues. Let's turn now to India, which is soon expected to overtake China as the most populous country in the world. New data released by the UN estimates the shift will happen sometime this summer. A survey by the UN in India saw almost two-thirds of respondents identify economic issues among their top concerns when thinking about population growth. Dave, what kinds of pressures do population increases in India put on the country's economy? Sure. So so these demographic trends are in some ways great for India because you have really a fast-growing workforce, um, particularly compared to China, which is an aging country. You have more and more people aging out of the workforce. So uh, India is already the fastest-growing economy in the G20. They have this growing workforce. The signs are quite positive for economic growth in India. But the economy is not creating enough jobs to absorb all of these people who are entering the workforce. So you actually have uh, an economy that seems to be booming if you look at the big numbers, but also unemployment is going up in India. So there are a lot of pressures. Like you said, in this UN survey, 80% of people said India's population was already too high. And the primary reason that they chose for that was because of these economic pressures. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of you can look at these numbers two ways, whether it's a great future ahead of India because it's, you know, becoming the biggest country in the world, potentially could even rival China uh, and even the U.S. if you look out decades and decades in terms of the biggest economies in the world, uh, but also at the societal level, 
you know, if, if there are pressures that come along with that. How are that country's leaders responding to these economic concerns? So they're actually, they, they've undertaken uh, a lot of projects to try to spur on the economy and also create jobs. There's a lot of infrastructure uh, being built in India right now. That's actually perhaps an under-discussed story because people look at China and what they've done in terms of rail and roads and building up. India is undertaking some similar projects there, um, but also they have an economy that's pretty protectionist. Um, there are some like governance issues that potentially could limit the uh, investment coming from the outside that could create jobs. And so, um, you know, the government is trying to create jobs, but, you know, jobs aren't just created by the government. Um, so there are, you know, other issues there. Are other countries looking at this as an opportunity for more investment in India? Uh, yes. Yeah, so so there's two things going on there. One is that, yeah, India on its own looks like a good investment opportunity. Two is some countries are hedging away from China. And so if you're looking for somewhere to build a factory, um, you know, India is looking like a more attractive proposition. Uh, again, there are limiting factors like we just talked about in terms of governance, etc. Um, but yeah, India is definitely uh, more and more the partner of choice for people who are looking to, uh, you know, build up their presence in that part of the world. Well, staying in India, the country's highest court has begun hearings on same-sex marriage. India's government opposes legalizing same-sex marriage. Prime Minister Modi insists a marriage should be between a man and a woman. On Monday, leaders submitted an affidavit asking that the case be thrown out. Jen, what do we know about these hearings so far? Yeah, so um, this is basically kind of a group of cases that were brought by uh, several LGBTQ couples. Um, and, the, you know, in general, this is opposed by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. He thinks that this should be de- dealt with in Parliament, not in the courts. Um, so basically, in this specific uh, cases, so in April, the Supreme Court began hearing the series of petitions. It's from 18 LGBTQ plus couples. Um, there are three who are raising children together. So they are asking for basically two things, a legal recognition of same-sex, mar- same-sex marriage um, but also the ability to legally adopt children. So, you know, it's focused on this Special Marriage Act of 1954 that amended uh, India's constitution to allow for civil marriage civil marriages between couples of different kind of castes and religions. And they're saying, look, can you just extend that to also include LGBTQ plus couples? Um, it uh, they had. Um, oral arguments that concluded Thursday. It's going to be a while till we know, probably a few months um, before we actually get the verdict. But it, it's a very hopeful moment, I think, for a lot of LGBTQ plus identifying people and couples in the country. Um, you know, there's a lot, I think, still to do culturally to to move the country, you know, where it it should be or where, you know, LGBTQ activists and, and identifying people would like it to be. I think you can also say the same for our country. Mm. Uh, you know, to be fair, India has come a very long way in a very short amount of time. Um, so, you know, in, in commending, you know, them for doing that. So I think, you know, we are seeing a kind of broader push to not just have it in society, but also have it kind of institutionalized legally for couples. Let's hear from Abhay Dang, who recently married his partner. He spoke to CNN last month. Do we have the right, right? Like something happens to me, does he have the right to inherit? Something happens to him, does I, do I have the right to inherit? No. So in the eyes of the law, whatever basket of rights marriage provides, which heterosexual couples completely take for granted, for us as same-sex couples, we did not have those rights. Joyce, broadly speaking, what, what's on the line in this case? 
I mean, I agree with Jen. This is a moment of hope. This is a moment of bravery for these 18 uh, LGBTQ uh, couples in India that have submitted uh, this, uh, this, uh, this petition. Five years ago, uh, India, the, the same court struck down uh, a ban on, uh, on gay sex in, in the country. We don't know where uh, this case will go. Yes, the Modi government called it uh, an urban uh, elitist concept far removed from the social uh, ethos of the country. Uh, but, uh, you know, the five-judge uh, Supreme Court may may rule very uh, differently. And if it rules in favor of these 18 uh, couples, India then will become the first country in South Asia to uh, adopt uh, gay marriage and the second country after Taiwan in, in Asia uh, generally. So it's definitely a case uh, to watch, uh, you know, from uh, where we're standing. Well, also in India, a former member of India's parliament, Atik Ahmed, and his brother were shot and killed on live TV. The lawmaker was convicted of kidnapping and was in police custody at the time of the shooting. Jin, what do we know about the attack? Yeah, so as you said, um, so this is Atik Ahmed. He was serving already a life sentence for kidnapping, um, and he's facing murder and assault charges. He's kind of a very well-known, notorious mobster, uh, kind of a almost like a crime family in um, in this region, in, in Uttar Pradesh. It's the northern Indian state. Um, and he was in police custody, was being escorted to a medical examination, and uh, was essentially gunned down in the street on live television, right? They were covering this kind of movement um, as well as his brother. And it wasn't necessarily unexpected either. Um, He had actually expressed fear for his life because um, officers gunned down his son just a few days earlier. Mm. So, you know, this was a very dramatic moment, obviously, and a horrific moment, just I'm sure for people who were watching it. Um, But it's also kind of the latest in a broader series of extrajudicial killings that have um, happened kind of in the region and also just in India more broadly. They're they're known as encounters uh, in India, which is rather nice euphemism for uh, an extrajudicial killing. But these encounters have been happening. Um, This also had some communal... uh, undertones. So the the shooters allegedly yelled glory to Lord Ram. So uh, that's a Hindu god um, after killing Ahmed and his brother. Uh, So there are kind of maybe tensions there around Hindu nationalism versus Atik Ahmed, who was Muslim. Um, You know, there is a lot of kind of communal tension going on with the rise of Hindu nationalism promoted by Prime Minister Modi. Um, Also, it seems that allegedly the shooters said they wanted to make a name for themselves and just take out this family. So it's not clear exactly whether it was about, you know, Hindu-Muslim tensions, whether it was just two guys who wanted to be on live TV and get notoriety. We still don't really know. The investigation is ongoing. But it was certainly a dramatic moment and I think really highlighted some of the lawlessness and um, this kind of broader problem of extrajudicial killings or encounters, uh, euphemistically, that that are a very real problem that we've seen in well, India. Well, Dave, I saw you nodding as Jen was talking about extrajudicial kill- killings in India. What have you been finding in your your coverage? Well, I was just agreeing with everything Jen was saying. There there have been a number of incidents of people who were either in police custody at the time or who were being pursued by police uh, who uh, end up dead, uh, as Jen said, um, often at the hands of police. Um, allegedly, there's kind of a tactic there that it can be simpler uh, rather than taking someone into custody, putting them through the judicial system, you know, 
just taking them out. Now, that's not exactly what happened in this case because this, these people had already been arrested and these were people off the street who came and shot them. Uh, but this idea of extrajudicial killings uh, in India is definitely uh, a phenomenon that's pretty well documented. Uh, before we move on, a quick update from the World Health Organization. This week, it warned that the COVID pandemic is still volatile. Michael Ryan is emergencies director for the WHO. He told reporters there could be further trouble before the virus settles into a predictable pattern. In the last 28 days, more than 23,000 deaths were reported globally, and 3 million new cases have been reported to the WHO. Ryan said respiratory viruses do not pass from a quote-unquote pandemic to an endemic phase. Instead, they tend to move to low levels of activity with seasonal epidemic peaks. That's a story we'll continue to watch here on 1A. Let's turn to news on China. Brian Peace, the top federal prosecutor in Brooklyn, announced on Monday that the FBI had arrested two alleged agents for the Chinese government. They're accused of operating a Chinese secret police station in Manhattan. Until several months ago, an entire floor of this building hosted an undeclared police station of the Chinese National Police. Liu Jianwang and Chen Jinping were arrested earlier this morning at their homes in New York City. As alleged, the defendants worked together to establish an overseas police station in Manhattan's Chinatown on behalf of the Fuzhou branch of the Chinese government's national police force. Joyce, what more do we know about the kind of information they were allegedly trying to gather? This is a big case, uh, Jen. This is something new that we're seeing from China and in, in, in the context of uh, you know operations in the U.S. It shows that China is becoming even more unhinged in projecting its you know intelligence and uh, foreign policy power. What we know about uh, uh, this case, these are two U.S. citizens that were uh, they were helping uh, China to uh, locate a pro-democracy activist of Chinese descent living in California. At least that's what the uh, uh, U.S. authorities uh, said. Uh, so they have been uh, using the station for multiple purposes. One for, you know, bureaucratic, uh, helping with immigration services and, and so on and so forth. But the, the scary part is in tracking dissidents, uh, dissidents in the U.S. If convicted, they would both uh, face up uh, to five years in prison for conspiring to act against uh, as agents of the Chinese uh, government and up to 20 years for the obstruction uh, of charge. Uh, but this is not something... Uh, entirely new for China globally. I mean, they've done uh, these things in Europe, uh, in the UK. A Spanish human rights organization, Safeguard Defenders, has said China uh, has dozens of such covert police stations across the globe. We know of cases in Canada, in the uh, uh, United Kingdom, and now in in, uh, the US. Uh, They're mostly used to harass, uh, threaten, and intimidate, and force uh, targets to return uh, to China for persecution. This this is, uh, you know, a bit of a reminder of what Iran, uh, of what some Middle Eastern countries, including Saudi Arabia, have been doing with their dissidents abroad. Well, this week, Axios reported that the House-China Select Committee would act out a war simulation where China invades Taiwan. David, that was supposed to happen on Wednesday. Why did this happen? 
So basically, um, you know, there have been a few of these war games, and I'm sure there have been more inside the Pentagon that we don't know about. But, you know, there, there are a number of different ways that a Chinese move on Taiwan could play out. And, and we've seen some of these in these exercises that, it, that China has carried out around Taiwan, whether it's a blockade scenario or whether it's an all-out invasion. And so what these lawmakers were doing was working with the think tank in D.C. to try to game out some of these uh, potential paths and what the U.S. could do in response, not just militarily, but in terms of trade, uh, in terms of sanctions, et cetera. What are the policy options that the U.S. would have if China undertook some of these various steps on Taiwan? So that was the purpose of, of the exercise. Well, and Jen, just remind us of the role Taiwan has played in the U.S. relationship with China. Yeah, I mean, right now, Taiwan is essentially the biggest and, and you know, potentially most dangerous flashpoint in the U.S.-China relationship. Um, and so, you know, the, the U.S. has uh, this very... Um, interesting relationship with Taiwan, right? Uh, strategic ambiguity is the policy that we we follow where we don't say whether or not we would actually necessarily 100% for realsies military intervene on Taiwan's side should China try to invade and take Taiwan by force. But we also, you know, provide arms and, and training and things like that to, um, to help Taiwan defend itself. And so, yeah, I mean, this is the flashpoint in the relationship beyond the kind of, you know, broader economic, strategic, geopolitical competition. This is the one that, you know, most uh, security experts and the U.S. military and the Chinese military and the Taiwanese military all look at as this is where actual war could happen. And so it's really concerning. I do think, you know, these kinds of war games and also seeing, you know, China doing its own kind of military operations uh, nearby. Uh, these are all, you know, in many ways kind of posturing and things like that. At the same time, it does help both sides potentially learn about the capabilities of the other side and could potentially, you know, in some ways take the place of an actual conflict in the sense that, you know, China can get its um, kind of, you know, uh, show that it is being strong and tough when it does these war games. And when the U.S. holds war games, we're saying, look, we also can do this X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Look at our big weapons. And so basically in a sense of uh, deterrence, right, hopefully deterring each side from actually doing anything that would lead to war. Well, Wisconsin Republican Representative Mike Gallagher chairs the House China Select Committee. And on Thursday, he introduced legislation that would have the U.S. Department of Defense expand its cybersecurity cooperation with Taiwan. He said the bill would arm Taiwan, quote, to the teeth in the cyber realm. Dave, why focus on that? Sure. So uh, many people will remember the focus on cyber ahead of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right? Strengthening uh, Ukraine's electric grid, et cetera, from potential cyber attacks from Russia. Um, you know, there are very similar concerns when it comes um, to Taiwan. Uh, first of all, Taiwan is an island. Uh, and so there will be issues with actual physical goods getting there, but also if you cut chi uh, Taiwan off, uh, you know, electricity, if you cut China off, or sorry, Taiwan off uh, from the internet, etc. Um, you know, these are tactics that you could potentially see take place in some kind of Chinese move on Taiwan. And so, um, you know, that's why it's it's a high priority. I want to turn now to Russia. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich made his first appearance in a Moscow courtroom this week. He's been jailed for more than three weeks after being detained on a reporting trip. Russia says 
the 31-year-old is a spy, charges denied by both the Wall Street Journal and the Biden administration. The U.S. says Evan is, quote, wrongfully detained, which is an important designation in trying to secure his release. Joyce, the Russian court upheld the charges against Evan. What happens next for him? Well, this was a closed hearing, so we don't know much about what happened in there, but he was denied bail, and then he was moved to uh, La Fortovo prison, which is where Russia houses mostly prominent political uh, prisoners. This is a worrisome. Uh, this is a worrisome case because Russia says it involves uh, espionage, and since Putin. Uh, uh, you know, took office. He's been determined to pursue cases like this. On average, Russia pursues uh, uh, 50 cases like this a year. It could carry up to 20 years uh, in uh, in prison uh, if uh, if if convicted. Uh, so uh, the. Russian authorities have not presented uh, public evidence uh, to support uh, to support their case and what they're accusing Evan of, uh, you know, reporting uh, that, you know, he's taken pictures of military uh, installations uh, in Russia. So it's uh, it's definitely high on the State Department uh, agenda and, and talks when it comes uh, to Russia. The question is, will Russia use uh, Evan's case to to get uh, to extract compromise from uh, the U.S. as it as it did with uh, Brittany uh, Grimer's uh, case and others, or uh, will this be uh, uh, you know a long-held uh, uh, prisoners on on uh, espionage in uh, Russian prisons? We don't know the answer yet. Yeah, and, and I was curious, Dave, from your sources, do we know if the U.S. government is is doing anything at this point to get him released? So um, they are trying uh, to get in touch with the Russian authorities to uh, make their case that um, obviously he is not a spy, that he's wrongfully detained. Uh, There's some pessimism that anything will happen on that front until the trial takes its course, typically in Russia. Um, Russia will only deal with potential prisoner swaps, etc. after they have convicted someone of the crime of which they're accused. That happened to Brittany Griner. She was in prison for nine months before eventually being swapped. Um, so, uh, and Evan's family and the journal have been quite clear that they, they see that this could, uh, be a matter of not weeks, but, but hopefully months, uh, you know, who knows, as Joyce said, there's a possibility it could stretch, um, beyond that. But of course, uh, Evan's family, uh, his colleagues are, are want everybody to keep paying attention to this case. Um, and of course, uh, you know, Evan is a very well-respected reporter, and we have no reason to believe that there's anything to these espionage charges. Well, turning now to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Ukrainian troops will begin training on American tanks in the coming weeks, according to U.S. defense officials. Defense, defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced at the Ramstein Air Base earlier today that 31 M1 Abrams tanks arrived in Germany to kick off a training program that's expected to last 10 weeks. Austin is meeting with representatives from 40 countries that are part of the Ukraine contact group. Jen, what's the significance of Ukrainian troops receiving these tanks and this training as they prepare for a spring counteroffensive? Um, well, it's really big. You know, uh, Ukraine has been kind of begging, uh, pleading <laughs> uh, in every forum possible to get as much, you know, advanced equipment uh, as possible from every country possible, right? They, uh, this is a, a, right now, essentially a war of attrition, right? Meaning that both sides are trying to wear down the other side. And 
you know, run them out of equipment and and men, frankly. Um, so, you know, after all of the big kind of heavy fighting that we saw in the kind of first big round, there has been a bit of a pause, though there is still active fighting around Bakhmut and, and several areas. Um, but we are, you know, seeing this kind of big push to try to gear up literally with gear um, in advance of this planned spring slash potentially now summer counteroffensive. So it is going to be a big deal. It is going to take a while to do training, which is why, you know, uh, President Zelensky, Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine, has been calling for this stuff for a very long time to say, look, we know that it takes a while to get trained. So if you could just get it to us as quickly as possible, we'd really appreciate it. Um, I think it's also interesting, too, that we saw um, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg um, make a surprise appearance in Kiev. Uh, if you are Russian President Vladimir Putin and one of your many stated justifications for this war uh, was to try to keep Ukraine from ever joining NATO. Uh, watching the head of NATO in Kiev saying Ukraine's place is in NATO is maybe not the outcome that you hoped for here. So not sure he's exactly the master strategist we thought him to be. Um, but yeah, it's really important that that Ukraine is getting these weapons. I think there was potentially uh, a bit of a setback with the intelligence leaks. I know we've talked about, yeah. um, and I know you guys have talked about on 1A with the intel leaks here in the U.S., that some of which uh, included some pretty detailed information. They're not detailed, detailed battle plans, but some pretty important information on how Ukraine and the U.S. is helping Ukraine prepare for the spring counteroffensive. It seems Zelensky had to pretty quickly pivot and maybe change some things on the ground. So that was a complication that I think they didn't need. Um, it's not particularly helpful. But I think, you know, all of this is to say that we're going to start seeing some really awful, intense fighting coming up in the spring and the summer as the ground thaws out and the, you know, second kind of big round of fighting really starts up. And it's it's going to be brutal. It's going to be awful. Um, and I think, you know, Ukraine is, is fully aware of it, but they need all the help that they can get. Well, we should note these these tanks, the 31 M1 Abrams tanks, won't be in service until fall. So they're not going to help much for a spring right. offensive. But Joyce, what is President Zelensky saying he needs right now? I mean, he's asking for a lot from uh, the Pentagon, including fighter jets, but I don't think the U.S. is ready to do that. What's what's interesting with the Abrams tanks and what the other stuff that the U.S. has sent is the timing coming after the Pentagon uh, leaks that showed some skepticism around uh, Ukraine uh, capabilities. And then uh, the divide within Europe on the um, war in Ukraine we saw with Emmanuel Macron uh, going to China and asking China uh, for help. Uh, so we are in this uh, dilemma now in, in Ukraine. How long can the West sustain uh, its support for Zelensky by uh, uh, you know, the, the aid and what uh, the U.S. and the NATO Secretary General, as Jem mentioned, being in Kiev, the West is saying we are still in this and uh, we are not ready to pull uh, the plug on on, uh, on this war that we expect to go for uh, a long time. Dave? Just to add to what Joyce said, one more thing that they're asking for, which is actually quite a bit simpler than fighter jets or even tanks, is artillery ammunition. Um, uh, there was a briefing this week from Ukrainian MPs who came to Washington, and they were saying that um, they're using six to 8,000 rounds a day and getting 20,000 rounds every two months. So if you do the math there, there's a big gap in between what they're using and what they're getting. These are Soviet-era systems, so they can't replace them one-to-one -one, uh, necessarily, but 
the um, Europeans, the U.S., are trying to ramp up the supply line because it's really going to limit this spring offensive if they can't keep up with Russia's firepower in terms of artillery. So that's another big thing to watch. Well, and Jen, briefly, how is the political conversation around the U.S.'s support of Ukraine playing out right now? Here in the U.S., yeah, I think there's a growing concern um, among, uh, you know, people who do support having U.S. support for Ukraine that um, particularly on the Republican side, uh, that there is a divide. Um, we saw a bit of a dust up happen um, with the uh, Florida governor who is, uh, you know, potentially seen as a potential challenger to President Donald Trump. Um making some comments that were not taken very well in terms of seeing, uh, you know, this being a war that is over land and that it's not something the U.S. should be involved in. And, uh, you know, then he kind of came back and walked those back. But I think, you know, there is a bit of a divide. Um, there is somewhat of a divide on the left as well. It's it's not only on the right. Um, I think you have this, uh, you know, people on, on both sides who are skeptical of U.S. military engagement abroad after the kind of very long, uh, you know, U.S. war in Iraq and Afghanistan, it is important to note that the U.S. military is not on the ground, you know, boots on the ground fighting in this war. It's a very different context. But I think, you know, there are concerns, too, as you know, in terms of how much money the U.S. is spending, what the U.S. is giving up for this. Um, I think it's important to note that a lot of the equipment that has been sent is stuff that was essentially, you know, as they say, like sitting in the closet. Um, but we have seen some concerns about needing to restock U.S. supplies as well. So I think, you know, closer we get to the election, I don't see Ukraine being like something that is a huge issue in the upcoming election. Foreign policy, um, much to my chagrin, is never the biggest, most important topic in U.S. politics. I personally think it should be. Of course, I work for a place called Foreign Policy. <laughs> However, um, I do think there is a lot of concern. You do have a lot of people in the Republican Party uh, in Congress, however, who are very staunch supporters of Ukraine and who I think have done a pretty good job so far in pulling their kind of coalition together and trying to keep everyone on side. So hopefully, I hope that, that will continue. Also this week, four Nordic countries are accusing Russia of spying at sea. A report released Wednesday comes from a joint investigation by public broadcasters in Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. Dave, what did this report reveal? This is an amazing story. So basically, uh, they're reporting that Russia has uh, spy ships that are disguised as fishing trawlers in the North Sea uh, that are basically mapping out plans to sabotage wind farms, undersea cables, etc., in, potentially in the event of a conflict between NATO and Russia. And so um, these reports, you know, I, I certainly was a bit astounded when I read what was, uh, what was in these uh, reports. This is some great reporting if obviously it all, it all turns out to, uh, to be valid. But yeah, so this, this seems to be a contingency plan. They're reporting that this is a potential contingency plan of Russia if conflict with the West really steps up that they could uh, help limit the amount of electricity coming from offshore wind to countries like the UK, uh, or they could cut undersea cables uh, between um, uh, parts of uh, the Nordic areas and the European mainland. So that, so it's um, uh, definitely, it reads like something out of a spy thriller, but uh, apparently it's actually happening according to these uh, public broadcasters. Well, let's briefly turn to Afghanistan. The Republican-led House Oversight Committee held hearing part one on Wednesday on the chaotic U.S. exit in August of 2021. Before we get to the back and forth from the hearing, writer Mitchell Zukoff was on 1A this week and shared his view. As you know all too well, partisan Washington is allergic to complexity. And 
Afghanistan is the very definition of complexity. Mitch's new book is The Secret Gate, a true story of courage and sacrifice during the collapse of Afghanistan. It's out on Tuesday, and you can find my conversation with him at the1a.org. Let's turn back to the hearing. Here are some opening remarks from Republican Chair Representative James Comer of Kentucky. There was no exit with dignity. It was a panic, and 13 American service members were murdered by a suicide bomber. Today, the Taliban flag flies over Kabul. There's no American military base there. There's no American embassy there. There's no hope there, especially for women and girls who are now terrorized by the Taliban. This is Joe Biden's legacy. But Democratic Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, who's the top Democrat on the Oversight Committee, raised these concerns about the tight focus on the Biden administration's withdrawal plan. Understanding what led to the collapse of the Afghan government and security forces is vitally important, but it requires looking comprehensively at the dynamics of the massive decades-long military and nation-building failure, not just the last few months of the war. This hearing's absurdly narrow focus is like trying to explain why the Confederacy lost the Civil War by examining only what happened at the surrender of Appomattox. Joyce, what's the goal of this hearing? I mean, this hearing is necessary oversight as part of U.S. democracy of a big event that uh, that happened on, you know, for U.S. national security and on the global uh, stage. What's missing out of these hearings is the plight of, uh, you know, millions in Afghanistan that were impacted by this. And we are not hearing uh, from them uh, because of this how this was executed and carried out from the Donald Trump administration to the Biden administration. Women now can't get uh, high uh, school uh, or university uh, education. They can't go to sports uh, stadiums. So uh, the partisan bickering uh, around this uh, is truly uh, another tragic uh, element uh, element of this that we may never get to uh, deal with the with the problems at hand. Beyond that, the the White House, you know, is also playing the blame game, saying they only executed the agreement carried out by Trump, but they've acknowledged some problems uh, that they've done with uh, uh, with how they uh, withdrew with the technicalities of it, not the actual decision. And that's going to do it for another week. Our very best wishes go to Joyce Karam, senior news editor at Al Monitor, Jen Williams, deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast, and Dave Lawler, senior world reporter at Axios and author of the Axios. World Newsletter. Thanks to you all. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. 
And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.